Every creator finds their own unique way to be creative. We're here to celebrate and learn from some of the best. Welcome to Michael's Craftivity Podcast. I'm Anna White, Vice President of Communications at Michael's, and today we're going to be talking about the incredibly creative field of interior design with the incredibly talented LA-based designer, Nina Freudenberger. Nina has an inspiring story to tell, not just about design as a creative endeavor, but also about building a very successful design business of her own. She founded her first business, House Interiors, in 2007 with retail shops in New York and L.A., Over the years, House has morphed into Freudenberger Design, and her work has expanded to include writing coffee table books like Surf Shack, which seems to be everywhere these days, and co-creating collections of rugs with Lulu in Georgia, a line of wallpaper with Studio 4, as well as custom furniture, which she offers as part of her holistic design services. Nina's also a wife and a mother to two young, very energetic boys on top of all this, and I could not be happier to have her on the podcast today. Please join me in welcoming Nina. Hi, Nina. How are you? Welcome to the Craftivity Podcast. Hi. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for including me. I am very excited. I adore you personally and also have admired everything you've done professionally. And I'm excited to hear more about it. Well, thank you so much. It really is so nice to be included. And I'm excited to share my story. It's definitely been a journey. And you'll hear all the little bits. But I am also really proud of it. So I wanted to kind of start way back with your childhood. You know, I know that you were born in Munich, but mostly raised in New York. So I'd love to hear a bit about that. And then also just your creative vibe as a kid. Totally. I love this question. I actually, I don't think I reflect on a day-to-day basis of my childhood and what brought me here. But I do think the question is really interesting because I think there were hints and clues throughout my childhood, which really kind of put me in line to do something in the creative world. I was born in Munich, Germany. My parents were both born in Germany. So we were emigrated to the U.S. when I was three, and we were the first of the entire family to come on over. My father worked for a German bank. My mother actually has always been an artist painting, you know, a little bit on the side. And we had this really beautiful, wonderful life in New York. I would say, I think it was slightly challenging for parents from a foreign country just to kind of land in a new spot. There were language barriers, cultural differences, and they were trying to preserve a little bit of our culture at the same time trying to let us acclimate into all the amazing things that were happening in the United States. So they came over for a business opportunity, but I think we found an incredible life here. And so I feel a connection to both locations. And I think that's something that my parents worked really hard at creating for me and that has always been really influential and kind of giving me a worldview that I'm very grateful for. And you said your mother painted? Was she an artist and creative herself? She's always been creative. I think when she moved to America, I think she found having time when we were going into school where I think she found some time and she really wanted to access some of her creativity. She started to really take it a little bit more seriously, devoting hours of it while we were at school. And she, what I saw was a real satisfaction in her work that I thought was really amazing. And so my father, I think, would come home 
and feel satisfied from his day or maybe sometimes, you know, some days were harder than others. But my mother, I saw her and she would have something similar and it was really beautiful to see, you know. Now she has totally grown as an artist and her work is super beautiful. And I feel really lucky that I was around that. She really nurtured that and nothing was kind of off limits, whether it was her photography for a while, it was oil painting, it was figure drawing, it was still lifes. There was always this creative, very open to whatever kind of captured you at the moment. You know, if I was obsessed with beading or we would have conversations about Roy Lichtenstein or she'd had so many art books around the house, like it was always around us in a way, for sure. So what were your first memories of you kind of accessing that own piece of you at home in terms of, were you always painting with her or? I would love the smell of her studio. There was this linseed oil smell, I think, from like the cleaning the paintbrushes. I love that smell. Mm -hmm. And she always had those kneadable erasers, you know, the ones that you could smush and make into like a ball, like those gray yes. ones. I love those yes. and her pencils. And her art tools were like somewhat off limits to me, for sure. When I was younger, it was like, do not go into my studio. But I think as I got older, I, I would be like, can I sit in your studio for a couple hours and work? And she's like, absolutely. And so I had access to like all of these easels and a little setup. It wasn't very big, but it was a wonderful setup for an artist where you could really shut the door and feel completely enveloped. You know, I don't think that it was like when we were younger, when I was like five, she was like throwing paints at us and she was suggesting we do figure drawing. But there was always, you know, Legos around. There were always crayons. She was always sketching in the backyard while I was playing. So it was always like kind of lurking around. So I picked up on it a little bit. And there was definitely like some scribbling on the walls. Your first wallpaper and line. on my sister. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like literally. Blame it on your sister. That is perfect. <laughs> no, I did. I, well, it was actually a great story. Like I had drawn it. I ran into the kitchen. I was like, my sister used yellow crayon on the wall. Stephanie used crayon. And my parents are like, they thought I was kidding, like on new wallpaper. And then I come in again and I was like, now she used red. And they were like, oh, okay. And then I come in and I was like, this time it's purple. And they were like, we got to see. So they both jumped up and then they like got in and they were like, Stephanie. And then (laughs) like within like five minutes, they were like, wait a second. Stephanie is three and she cannot reach what you're reaching right now, (laughs) Nina. (laughs) And the tone shifted. (laughs) So, you know, it was an outlet for me in a couple of ways. That's awesome. Yeah. It it sounds like, I think there really is something for just being around it. It's like, as you grow up being around people who are creative or people who are artists, I think, you know, my dad's an architect and he has a story uh, similar. He didn't actually blame anyone else. You were you were smarter in that sense. But he he was <laughs> in a preschool and they all had little black and white checked smocks. And my dad just starts coloring in all the white checks on the kid beside him, his pants. Mm-hmm. So the, <laughs> and the teacher's like, you're supposed to be coloring on the paper. But my dad was very, he's like, no, all the white has to go. Like we have to put color in all these. So yeah, I, I think those moments so are, <laughs> they do kind of stick with you. I think for me, well, I have two boys. Sometimes I just can't run down the street and throw another ball or like chase after them with bikes. And I just, I really love sitting with them and seeing what they come up with. It's so interesting, just like even how they hold it, which colors they're choosing, why they're choosing that, why do they need scissors urgently, like what's happening. And it's just really, I find it to be really interesting. It's a beautiful thing, but it's also very interesting. And I think it says a lot about who your little guys are or girls, you know, so. That's so true. 
So then as you went through school, you went to Rhode Island School of Design, which is an incredible institution and obviously one perfect for the line of work that you ended up doing. But how did you kind of jump from being a kid coloring on the walls to deciding you wanted to go to RISD? It was a little bit more of a journey than just heading over to RISD because my parents were really interested in making sure that I had academic success. And in Germany, the schooling system goes a little bit differently. There is not a university that kind of encompasses a wide variety of majors I think there are different schools for different lines of work that you might choose. So for them, they were really, I think my father as a banker really wanted to make sure that I excelled in school, but also in maybe some of the typical fields of study. However, one thing that he always said in the back of his mind was he regrets a little bit not having been an architect. And I always remember sitting at the table and kind of hearing that because I think he was always interested in houses and little models and things. And Through his lens, I started to see that this was a potential or interesting way for me, a path for me. And then the other thing that he did was he was very adamant about how women can have these incredible businesses on their own, that you can go out on your own and do something without having a structure or you can work on your own or, you know, female-run businesses were really incredible to him and that there were these opportunities here in the United States that were just amazing and just to go for it. And so with those two things, they were like kind of always trickling around in my head So I remember it was like kind of around pre-college time. I wanted to try out an art school. So I went to Pratt Institute in New York and I would go into the city every day with my enormous portfolio and go to these architecture classes and we would walk around New York City and look at the architecture and sketch it and see, you know, and talk about architecture, visit studios. And I saw women working in there that I was so impressed. I was just so like, wow, what's happening here? You know, it just felt like, I found the offices to be beautiful. I thought it felt creative, but it also felt controlled in a way. Like, you know, there were multiple layers to being an architect. And I remember thinking my architecture professor or the guy that at the time, I think he was like a adjunct professor or something, a student teacher. He knew so much about so many different things. I He was about architecture, but it was also about art and printmaking and cool sneakers and boat building. And architecture is about all those things, right? It's like all these layers, like visual arts, industrial design. They're just so many layers. So the next year, I was like, what is the next art school pre-college program could I go to? And I did the RISD pre-college program. And that was like wild. I was really just so excited to be in that program, but also they just really let you go over there. It was nonstop creativity. I could not even believe the talent of the other people I was sitting in there with. These kids were so talented. They came from across the country and just were like, I mean, it was like next level. And I was like, oh, got to start working on that portfolio because I am not, I am these, everyone else is so incredible. I think that's a common theme amongst artists, right? Self-doubt, but it was really, it was like over the top there. And I applied to RISD and I thought I had no chance. It was really a stretch for me. And somehow someone in that admissions group decided I would be cool in the architecture program and they let me in. That's great. Yes. Okay. So then you go. That's a four-year program, undergrad. It's actually a five-year program. You get two degrees at RISD. You get a Bachelor's of Fine Arts and you get a Bachelor's of Architecture. There are different avenues you can take to get an architecture degree, but 
Mine is a five-year program. It was an unbelievable program. It was, I mean, I slept under my desk, my drafting desk for like weeks straight. Like we would stay up till four in the morning. We would live, breathe, and like everything was architecture. It was a super intensive, major program. Everyone else tells stories about college. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I don't even like, you you skipped a class. If we skipped a class at RISD, you like, really, you can skip like two classes and then you fail. Like it's, everyone has to go. Everyone works super hard. Studio culture is very serious. You don't party that much. It was very serious. I can't believe I made focus it Focus on the work. You know, so. It sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. Real focus on the work. That's interesting to have that experience that young and then how in some ways it is even less surprising than that you've gone on to build this budding design empire, really, in a sense. And I think from that training ground, it's like, you know, it's competitive. Other people are great. And if you want to do your best work, you really have to focus on it. No, there's not a lot of time for fraternity parties or whatever totally. else other people are doing in college. But I think that was part of the training that an art school, that's actually such an important part of it, because you have to decide that you're sitting down as an artist to create work. You have to decide that you're making time. You have to decide that you're taking art, your passion over something else that just kind of comes up. You know, it's so self-driven that unless you learn the art of paying attention to your art and making time for it, then I think it's really hard to succeed or create anything. So that's what that school, you know, they can teach you to draw, but there is a level of it that just comes from you. So they can only nurture that back end, which is rigor and focus and making sure that you trust yourself as an artist. And that was that education base. So they took it very seriously, but that propelled me and continues every single day for a work ethic that I think has allowed me to make art as a business. Oh, that's such a beautiful line, art as a business. I think so many people want that in um, a lot of ways. And I think we we definitely saw people start businesses. Maybe there was kind of like a side thing that they'd done. And then for a number of reasons, through 2020 and through COVID, we saw an uptick in makers creating businesses with their art. I think it takes a lot of courage. It's a risk for sure. But just to <laughs> state the obvious, you finished your degree in architecture, but you are not now practicing architecture. And so what was that decision or how did that transpire kind of leaving school and then deciding what to do next? You know, so after I graduated from RISD, I was all in. I was like, this is, I'm following the path to get the accreditation, to do the licensing, like, let's do this, you know? There was definitely a little bit of burnout after school in terms of after your thesis, you spent like a year of your life exploring everything you believed in in architecture and kind of coming out, you're like, what's the real world going to be like? What's this profession like? What have I done for the last five years? So I was very curious about what my next steps were. I got a job at an architecture firm called Condilis, Costas Condilis, who had in it an interior design component called Condilis Design. And I always knew that I was kind of going into the design section, but I didn't even think I was going into interior design. It was a small group of women inside a big company. And we got all the interiors uh, jobs from the buildings that the architects were designing. So if there was a lobby that had to be done, if there was a private residence that the developer was doing at the same time and we would just do the interiors. So I kind of all of a sudden ended up in this interior side. And at first I really was like, 
I didn't know if I was going to be doing drawings for bathrooms, if I was going to be doing like furniture floor plans. I think it kind of started like that. And then it started to completely transform. And I found myself picking up fabrics and choosing furniture and helping on all sorts of things like curtains, like making sure the curtain deliveries were showing up, getting that sofa in the elevator, doing these things that I've never been trained for. I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, it was like truly, I cannot even tell you the crazy things that have happened, had happened, but you know, being dumped into a profession that I thought I knew because I had studied architecture and I then realized I had no idea what I was doing. It was really interesting for me. The team was super supportive. It was like everyone, all hands on deck, just go for it. But it really was like I was learning an entirely new profession. And Mm -hmm. architecture now continues to help me in my business. But at that time, there felt like almost no overlap, which was very surprising to me. But I did find so many things in it that were so satisfying that I decided to keep going with it because the timelines were shorter. It wasn't like doing a skyscraper that would take four years of my life. It was six months. I love meeting with the clients, finding out their quirks, where everyone sits for breakfast, if the wife and the husband are disagreeing about the furniture fabric. It felt so personal. And I love that. I loved hearing about people's routines. I loved making that happen. And the satisfaction of completing a vision and then people living in it was like so exciting to me. And I also saw a glimmer in there of how I could have a business as a woman in a way that didn't require additional schooling, additional licensing, no major insurance. It just felt a little bit easier than having an own architecture practice, which I had understood from all my professional practice classes and the professors I knew was not an easy life. So I kind of saw something in interior design where I was like, this could be it. I have so much more to learn, but I kind of decided I was going to keep going with it. Okay. So how many years then did you spend at the Condilas Design Company? I think I spent from the time I graduated, which was 2003, to probably 2007, I want to say. Three and a half, four four years. Mm -hmm. So after that time, you felt that you'd learned a lot on the job and you were ready to go out on your own? Yes. I mean, it was just insane. I I can't even imagine that I thought that. I just, I'm still figuring things out today. And I'm like, what? Like, I really, I do think that being around other experienced people is priceless. So I was very excited to go out on my own. I certainly could have used a couple more years working under (laughs) experienced people. Because our interior design world is very competitive and challenging, and you're only as good as your clients. So I kind of left without very many clients. I didn't leave with any of theirs. And I was really kind of telling anyone that needed anything, I would do it for them. But that doesn't produce a portfolio. That doesn't give you additional clients. I mean, the whole thing was really, it wasn't very well thought out. But at that point, I was ready to try something new. And I thought my phase two would be happening at that point. And so I just went for it. I mean, I don't know what my parents were thinking. They were, I think they were like terrified for me, but I had built up this confidence somewhere along the way that I could just go out there and do it. It was a crazy risk. So you think that that's what it was you just happened to over the years and probably thanks to your parents and some success and certain experiences, you just had the confidence to do it. Yeah. I really wanted to take things under, I really wanted to do things my way. And I really wanted to 
really give it a shot. And I think my ultimate goal was always to have my own business and it needed to be then. So I had to, just in my mind, I just really wanted to get started on that path. So how quickly, I guess, after starting House Interiors, which was the original name of your company, Mm -hmm. how quickly did you do like your first home, like full home kind of? It took like two years. It took two years of dragging myself through New York City, like doing any project that would come my way. And something that I've learned now is like you pick your clients just like they pick you. You know, there are certainly good experiences, bad experiences in terms of sometimes it's the right fit. Sometimes it doesn't feel like the right fit. Sometimes it just feels like it's not a great match. It can certainly ruin your year if the project's terrible and the clients are really intense. And so I didn't know that. I was taking any project. So I was working super hard with projects that I wasn't necessarily able to photograph because I was just doing whatever the clients wanted. It didn't have my style on it. So I did that for a long time until finally someone reached out and they said, hey, I remember you worked somewhere else. I have a project for you. Are you interested? And at the time I was like, is this my break? Is this it? Because I was just really exhausted at that point. And the project was great. And it gave me back the confidence I needed. I was like, all right, I can do this. This wasn't like a terrible idea. I feel just as satisfied now as I did back then, and even more so because it's my own business. But, you know, I had to learn invoicing. I had to learn how to deliver news, and I was responsible for everything. I had to set up accounts everywhere. You have to register as an interior designer to get fabric and all this stuff. I just had to do so much, but it was so satisfying that it then kind of pushed me forward into having additional clients and me feeling more confident and putting myself out there a little bit more. And at that point, did you have kind of a mentor or could you go back to some of the folks you'd work with and ask questions about that? Or you just really figured it out on your own? I mean, I literally figured it out on my own. But I will say that the one thing that I have learned now as I'm older, you know, I never asked for help. And I am so excited if someone emails me and says, can we go to coffee and can you answer a couple career questions for me? I love that. And nothing could be smarter. And everyone loves to tell their story, but also everyone loves to help. I'm so grateful for any help I've received in the past. I'm so excited to pay it forward. For me, I didn't. I was embarrassed. I didn't think that people that were like these glamorous interior designers would ever talk to me. An unanswered email at that time for some reason seemed like that would be devastating. Now I can assure you I do not mind if someone doesn't answer my emails. I do not care if someone doesn't have time for me, but asking is the first step. I will say 95% of the time someone says yes. So that was something, whether it was the interior design profession, if I had actually asked someone what it was really like, would I have maybe slowed down the trajectory a little bit? Maybe. And then the same thing when I started the retail stores. I mean, I didn't even know, I've never worked in a store before. I didn't even know what a point of sales was. That was just a huge learning curve. But really, I just needed to ask. And it would have saved me probably hours months off my life and like a lot of tears. (laughs) So let's talk about the stores because that is something that obviously being at Michael's, we are very steeped in brick and mortar retail. And that was new to me coming here two years ago because I'd mostly worked in tech and on digital platforms. So I've been learning a lot too about it and it's fascinating and people really do still love to go into a store, especially when it's something that's like tangible and you want to touch. If you're a creative or an artist, you want to touch, you want to feel, you want to make sure the quality is what you want. But tell me about that because you you did have two shops and it sounds Mm -hmm. like you just kind of opened them maybe without Mm -hmm. any experience really working in retail, Mm -hmm. which is really Mm -hmm. 
exciting and impressive and slightly scary. And then, <laughs> and then what was that journey like? And then also, why did you decide to move away from the retail space? So as I was working on client projects for interior design, there were a couple stores like in the West Village in New York that I would walk into and there would be like these girls that just had amazing style, best taste. Their stores were so cool. They could buy like these cool products and they just seemed like they were having the time of their lives. I don't know. Just like, you know, their dog would be sitting next to them. They'd be like sipping some tea. They would just have all the time in the world to talk to you. I just was like, this is the life I want in. So, I mean, I'll tell you what the reality is, but I I thought that that was like another option for me. And what I was finding as buying things for clients, you know, at the beginning, I had clients that really wanted to find unique pieces that were affordable. And at the time, there was only a couple big brand stores that had that stuff that was at a lower price point, but it felt a little bit higher design. And this was 2007. It just didn't exist. I think now we have totally changed the world. But, you know, at the time, it, Etsy was just popping up. And I saw these communities of small artists And I was like, if I could get those people, like, beautiful stuff in my store in New York City and it was styled correctly, this would be incredible. I also found that, like, I could never find accessories in New York City. You know, New York City people, like, you don't really want stuff in New York, so you're kind of, like, not shopping for, like, little odds and ends, but, like, you need them. So I really was like, my business model is affordable home decor. And to really try to bring a unique point of view to that and support artists from everywhere, you know, from, you know, starting to find them on Etsy and then bringing them into brick and mortar to reaching out to local artisans, to craftspeople, going to fairs. I was really so open to it all. So I opened my first store. The reality of a shopkeeper is very different than what I saw in that cute little West Village store. She looked so relaxed and she was willing to talk to me for so long because that is part of the position. (laughs) And, you know, her kindness, she was certainly like an amazing person. I totally believe that. And her eye was amazing. But, you know, you are customer service and it is a smile on your face. And, you know, like that is how you pay your rent every month. And I think I was trying to do two things that were very different that didn't work together well. And I never wrote a formal business plan, but I think if I had just written one, I would have heard myself. But selling small, lower-priced items in a very small store in New York City with a very high rent, there were some things that weren't connecting there. (laughs) The economics of that don't quite work. Economics were not. So I worked really hard, and it did work, but it required so much energy to function for those six years that at a certain point I had to reevaluate my business and decide which part of my business was making the most money and which one did I have to decide that I would continue moving forward with and putting all my energy into one thing. So that was kind of a growing phase. But, you know regardless, those stores were incredible for me. You know, I met so many people. They saw my style. You know, things were in magazines, and I would never have gotten my name in a magazine before that. You know, I did collaborations with artists that I'm still so grateful today. I learned so many skills from, like, customer service to dealing with, like, all sorts of shipping issues. I would not trade it for a single second. However, if I had to give advice to someone, I certainly have some to give. (laughs) So I think people who do these shops so well that we have definitely felt that. And I'm sure some of the listeners here have too. And hopefully people feel it. It's not a boutique going to Michael's, but you do feel 
that like excitement for going to the store that you love. And I think yeah. growing up, my mom had a shop for 48 years, actually, that sold books and folk art and crafts. And I also know the reality. It is you have got to be there to sell stuff. And um, yeah. for small businesses, when you have children as well, mm-hmm. it's it's tough. But I also totally admire and and think it just could be the coolest life. So it is interesting how the reality totally. and the, <laughs> the perception are not quite aligned. <laughs> yeah. And I do think it is still like the most lovely light to go into your own space. It is so admirable, but and also so beautiful. At a certain point, I did have to make the decision like where I was going to be based out of because I had met my husband and flying between two coasts was like, exhausting and considering a family and all of that, it was just, it started to become, you know, literally those stores were my babies. Were they going to be replaced by actual babies? Yes. So like I just had to start making decisions. And while I was doing the stores, I had diversified. I was always doing interior design while I had the stores because I knew that if something, there would be months that interior design would do incredibly well and then we'd be very slow and the store would actually fluctuate on an opposite kind of timeline. So there was always a way for it to work, but there was a point where it started to tip really heavily to one side. And the store, the time the store took from me for the buying and the inventory and the shipping just took away from projects that I knew needed me and were quite frankly better for business. So I had to go that route. So let's talk about some of those. So over the years, your businesses shift from house interiors to Freud Burger mm-hmm. Design and mm-hmm. your obviously design services are going very well, it seems. I love the board behind you with all those oh, really you. cool images. And yeah, so maybe tell us like the kinds of projects that you're working on and then also you have expanded and diversified in a lot of other ways. So I'd love to hear about some of that as well. So, you know, we predominantly do interior design for private homes and that is so much fun. I will say that we have clients in Colorado, in New York, in Southern California. We get to work with really cool people. I will say that our clients are right now like the coolest. And I think I've gotten to a point in my career where people are seeking me out for my work as opposed to just doing interior design, which is, that is its own thing, right? Like everyone can buy it, you know, that's a different thing, but they're coming to me for different reasons. So there's a level of trust built in now. I feel like people understand where I'm coming from. So I don't, nothing feels confusing. You know, I kind of show up as I am and it feels very authentic. It feels really fun for me and it's just wonderful. So we do everything. So we sometimes start when the house has not been built. Sometimes we start when the house has been built and they're living in it. We do projects of different sizes and different things. So ski houses, beach house, your standard house. Three years ago, maybe four years ago, I was asked to do two hotels. I remember that day and I like could not believe like what was happening. I was like, this is has been always a dream of mine. And it was so much fun. One was in San Luis Obispo and the other one was in Cambria. And this hotel group just reached out and we met and they just truly to this day, I'm like, how did that happen? It was a leap of faith, I think, on their part. For me, it was the project of my dreams. It all came together. Those hotels are open. And, you know, in between all that, that was COVID. So, like, I had to make a hotel during COVID. So it was an unbelievable journey. And something that I realized that I love doing so much is hospitality. That was something I didn't realize. I thought I might love it, but I didn't know how much I would actually love it. And it is a true 
part of the business that I'm very excited about. So on that point, Nina, the difference between doing a home, someone's personal space, and then like a hotel, which is, as you just said, more hospitality, like, are the skills relatable? Or do you really have to kind of have a very different mindset? It's like you need to have all 20 rooms have to make these people feel like they're at home as opposed to one living room feels like home. I mean, I I can imagine that would be quite a challenge to think about. It is actually. So the experience of like a traveler, like it is weird, like as humans, like we just like grab some bags and like get somewhere. And then just we're trying to make ourselves as comfortable as humanly possible while still enjoying the experience and exploring. Like what's so interesting, though, is that we all have the same routine or something similar in a hotel room, right? We all have a bag. Because no one shows up with no bag unless you're like a serial killer. And then like that's a different story. But like mostly you're showing up with like a bag of like clothing and you have to put that bag somewhere. And so is there a spot for that, right? The next thing you might do is like go check out the bathroom and just like wander around the room a little bit. Look out the window, figure out are you turning on music? Are you turning on a fireplace? What's like available to you? Kind of do a full scope out, right? And I think then like, you know, I think even in when you're laying in bed, like, I mean, in hotels, like you can't, can you not find the plug? What's your reading light? Can you turn off the lights from your bed? There are these like incredible things that happen in a hotel room in a kind of really condensed space. You know, they're not, hotel rooms are not big and they're very similar. So you got to zero in on those kind of routines. And as a traveler myself, I felt like I knew what that would be. So we were really specifically kind of went in for all of those things. Some of them were site specific and I can talk about that, but it was really fun to talk about that routine in a home. I don't know their routine. I don't know, like, I don't know your routine. I'm sure your routine is like awesome. And I would love to know your routine. Like, where do you drink your coffee? What's happening? You know, is everyone, do you wake up before the kids, after? Yes, I try to. Otherwise, you just start the day behind. That is so proactive of you. I mean, I am really already behind. But that's shifted a bit as they've gotten older. Because when they're little and they just run in and they're up early and it's like, you know, I'm not, I'm not waking up at like 530 to beat them up, but now they sleep a little later. And so I can be up early, my tea, a little meditation. I kind of have my routine in the morning. So elegant and like wonderful. Yeah. The routines is like super interesting to me. I've, and that'll lead into like the next part of my like world, but I, I love a routine. Like I think it's so interesting. There are things that are very similar to all of us, like as humans that we just naturally do. And we don't even realize like we might eat different foods for breakfast. And some people stand up, some people sit down, some people sit on a couch, some people sit on a table. Totally. Those are differences. But like, you know, I will say that we all need a place to eat. We all want a place to feel comfortable. We want light to read, you know, like there are basics. So, and I love finding out about routines. Like I think it's so telling and it's so, it's so interesting to me. I just love it. I'm just like fascinated by it. So how does that connect to your other kind of ancillary product lines? So I think, well, it kind of connects to my interest in how people live. So I love hearing when my clients tell me how they live and I love figuring out how the traveler lives. But then I was really interested in just when I had moved from New York to LA, I was just really fascinated by like California. I was so confused by it at first. I thought it was the same country I was moving to. It turns out it felt like a different planet. I was like, what is going on here? Why is everyone like walking down the street like at 5 a.m. with their surfboards? Like, like what's happening? You know what I mean? Like what is even happening here? It was like a Wednesday. I just was so confused. I had no idea. 
because I was like used to working in New York City. Everyone's like running down the street, like work, work, work. And I just couldn't understand the like the whole vibe. So I was like, all right, I got to figure this out. And then as I met people and I went into their homes, I started seeing style differences. And that was like lifestyle differences. But also there were same routines, but just differences in how people live, you know, like different choices. And that was very interesting to me. So for my first book, so Surf Shack, I was so interested in seeing something that people felt so passionate about that they created their whole world in the sense of interiors around surfing and what that looked like. And so that's the location choice. That's where they store their surfboards. That's the floors that can accommodate the sand that comes in from the beach. It's everything. And I was just so fascinated by that. And I still am. I All I do, my like one of my biggest passions like with these books is just to go into people's homes stare at their homes, try to figure out what their routines are, imagine them, think about them, and just like admire them. They're all incredible. And people make different choices in their home and they're all so beautiful. One thing I was interested in is, you know, as an artist, as a creative and someone who's really, you're creating your own design business with your style front and center, really. You know, it's not, doesn't seem so much about what clients want, but really it's this vibe that you've created. How do you stay true to that, to your sense of style when you have clients who are maybe asking different things from you or you're doing a collaboration with a furniture line or a rug line? How are you not influenced to move in a different direction? How do you kind of keep true to to your sense of style? Well, I think that it's challenging because there's part of me that well, I like to do my own thing. <laughs> I like the things I like, right? Right. And I think that's really natural as an artist. We like to explore what we're interested in, right? That's something that's super interesting and beautiful to us, right? I think with a client-based industry or, you know, if you're selling art, that you maybe sometimes try to appease clients or try to do what you think they want. And that was certainly true in the beginning of my career. I will tell you that that not only brought myself zero satisfaction, but ultimately I don't think the clients were happy either because it didn't feel authentic. And I think the conversation about authenticity is really, really important. And there are times when that really doesn't jive well with like trying to make a living <laughs> or keeping a business afloat because like you you know you take on certain projects because you have employees to pay or you have rent to make or you're a people pleaser or whatever the reason is you know sometimes it's it's really hard to say no and it took me truly like 20 years to figure out what is important to me and what's important to me is authenticity and I will say that not a single thing that's happened to me in my life has happened when I wasn't authentic. It's truly always the things that I'm creating with that in the background. And if I'm pushed in another direction, it never works. So I didn't realize that was the thing. And when I figured that out, I now make decisions based on that as a keystone kind of in the back of my head. So let's talk about the books for a minute. Just thinking about you as a creative person, you know, this kind of starting career in architecture, which is creative, but there's a lot of math and there's this combo of the like art and engineering and architecture. <laughs> yeah. Right. That, that's definitely what kept me a safe distance that's from right. it. But, um, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, and then into the design world where you're visually helping people create their lives around them. And then to the books, which, I mean, you, you, say you go in and kind of look at their homes and study, but you also like have to write and you have to be able to tell a story in a format that's going to be interesting to someone when they open it on their coffee table. And I think with Surf Shack, I mean, there's not a 
shop, those boutiques we were just talking about, those adorable little shops in each cool little town, they all have surf shack, at least in California. I mean, I go, I, I always send you a picture. I'm like, found another one. I know, I love it. <laughs> I like, love it. It's like a little update from you. I'm like, I feel so like validated. I'm like, thank you for, oh, thank you <laughs> for another small shop photo. in Half Moon Bay with your, <laughs> yeah. But so how did you make that transition into like creating these books, these visual books, but also like organizing them in a way that tells a story? So I think, well, I want to kind of talk about a little bit about like why I started doing the books, because I think as Great. an artist, I think we sometimes don't talk about burnout or feeling uninspired or feeling kind of nervous about the trajectory kind of of things. And the self-doubt again, a bit doubting that maybe you're on the right path. Yeah. And I, I would say that my response to that always throughout has been just diversify, just try something else. You don't have to turn the other thing completely off, but you can certainly give something else a shot. And if you can manage them simultaneously, awesome. Hopefully they fuel one another, but that's like a big thing of mine. You know, when I felt maybe a little bit burnt out with like the hustle of trying to get my original design projects, I opened a store hoping they would feed each other. You know, sometimes if I feel a little exhausted by interior design and I just want the creative output, I make a piece of furniture. If I look around and I feel like I'm seeing the same images of inspiration being regurgitated or sent to me by clients. Sometimes I yearn for some like more inspiration or, and that's how kind of the books started was my search for inspiration. I didn't know how the books were going to go basically. So I decided to do both at the same time, interior design and the books and the books now fuel me in my interior design profession every single day. So I've created this additional passion that when I'm feeling like one's not working or one's hard on me, I always have this other one that I feel like pure joy on. And they switch like every day. If you ever get stuck, I think the best way forward is sometimes just to do something else in that kind of feeling. And that's what RISD taught us. I think there was never like, you just stop. You don't just like cry on your couch. You just push forward on some, in some other kind of capacity. It's interesting too, because you, when talking about your mom, it sounds like she wasn't like a maker or crafter, creator, artist who focused on one medium. Like she tried different things out. Yeah. And at Michael's, I've learned a lot about like the journey of an artist and a creative. And one thing that it has struck me is that there are people who really love to do the one thing. You totally. know, it's they will crochet and they will get so deep into crocheting and maybe it gets more intricate, more complicated and bigger pieces. Or, But the, but then there are other people who love to try the different things. You know, Cricut came out, everyone, those people all bought one and tried to learn that and selling beautiful like personalized shirts and Yeti mugs and all that. And then there's some like big yarn comes out and they're like, oh, I'm going to try that. Totally. But it is a bit of a different, you know, not all creatives fall into that. I'm going to try something new thing, but I do think there's value in when you're feeling a bit bored by the thing you're doing, or you don't feel as inspired to just learn again, you know, be a novice, don't be the expert and try something new. Yeah. I think being able to pivot a little bit if you're feeling creatively stuck is a really important thing. Don't just stay stuck, just pivot a little bit. <laughs> and for me, I think the gentle pivots help me re-energize as a creative. So that that is something that I've been doing. <laughs> I've been pivoting a lot. I've been pivoting quite a bit. So I feel very fortunate to work in a creative profession, which allows so many different avenues. So if there's a day that I feel like I need to be inspired, I can look at vintage furniture, I can touch fabrics, I can do a sketch, I can 
go shopping. I can write a book or research other homes or have a store or, you know, it's a really exciting profession to be in. And it allows for a lot of little detours along the way, which is nice. So how do you think about time? Because doing all these things obviously takes time. And with a husband and two young kids, kind of how do you arrange your day? How do you organize your day to make sure that you do have time for yourself ever? You know, I think the word balance is so tricky because I don't know what that means. And I think for a little bit, people were pretending there was something called balance. But I, at least in my world, I have not yet found it. You know, every day feels different for me. And there are days where I am just like, I wake up and I'm just like, feeling great and inspired. I'm going to just go to work. I'm going to blow away everyone with this like awesome design. And then I come home and I've got nothing left to give. And these poor kids are sitting there just like, we're like, Hey, and I'm like, uh, you know, I'm trying, but it's like a little bit of a struggle. You know what I mean? Like, you know, right. So yeah, there are some days that I wake up and I'm just like, these kids are like everything and I'm super mom and I'm you know, communicating with the teachers and getting all the craft supplies for, you know, the upcoming Halloween party. And I crushed that day. And then I like totally like skip a Zoom meeting that I had. So I think that you just have to, you know, for me, at least I just I really legitimately try my best every day. Like I don't phone it in. I like I like actually try every day. And I feel like the small things are wins. I know there was someone that just wrote on Instagram, like, you know, I think there was like, you know, mothers were calling bathing, taking a bath or a shower, self-care. And that's like not self-care. That's just like, you're just like washing your body. That does not count. (laughs) You're like, everyone should be able to take a shower. And if you can't find time to take a shower, then something has gone wrong in the scheduling, you know? But I know it's hard because like I have the kids and sometimes I don't wash my hair for three days, like totally. So I know that exists, but I do think that For me, self-care is maybe found in the things that I create during the day, and that's where I feel taken care of. I think it's not necessarily putting on a face mask. So do I have time for that? No. But do I have time to, you know, during the day or in the evening to, like, flip through one of my favorite design books or work on a little furniture sketch or, you know, just sit around and dream of, like, my next big collaboration. Totally. Like, I have time for that. It's certainly not easy, and I would like to say that every day is different. So there are some days I'm a great mom and some days I'm a great business owner, and there are days in between where I fail at both and there are days that I excel at both. So I'm just grateful that I can do both. Oh, I love that. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Do you feel like you have balance? (laughs) Increasingly, as I've made it much more of a focus for me, I do. I do feel like I have a bit more. But ask me that today, you know, and I'll say yes, because we had a great weekend, lots of fun activities for the kids. But I have really carved out more time for myself as a working mom. And sometimes that does include a super hot tub with a bath bomb but it's not just like a quick dip. It's like a 30-minute just totally. soak. Like the soaking tubs at that beautiful hotel in Cambria that you designed that are Aww. outside for anyone listening. They're so cool. Steel tubs painted hunter green um, outside of the hotel rooms. Yes, like that, 30 minutes in that, watching the sunset with the really warm, that would be that would be some self-care for me for sure. Do you know those are horse troughs? I thought so. That yeah, are okay, repurposed. I didn't know. So you totally could do that in your backyard. 
like not even kidding. <laughs> that would be, oh my gosh, we should totally do that. That totally. would be a DIY project. project. We should put that on michaels.com slash projects. <laughs> Make your own horse trough bathtub for your backyard. Totally. <laughs> for your mom time. <laughs> for, for your, your time mom, for your mom. special balancing, <laughs> your, your, you know, for your self-care time. Yeah. Yeah. I have to hide it and sneak back there. Well, okay, Nina, last question, because we yes. are actually well over time and this has been so fun and inspiring even better than all my expectations which were really high what is one tool in your office there in your crafting space with your kids that you could not live without oh wow that question is really throwing me for a loop (laughs) (laughs) one arts and crafts product i do i love so many arts and crafts i mean i literally could spend days in an arts and crafts store it's my favorite place and it's a great place to take kids too for like a little bit of time to like i mean that is a time burner and then you got an activity when you come home it is like the ultimate what is my favorite tool do you have like blue tape does that count because i use blue tape every single day of my life Yeah. So the painter's tape? The painter's tape. I mean, I do everything. Like I'm confused about the size of a bedside table and where the light should hang above. We just tape it right here on the walls. We just tape out the line for the table and then we like make the, and we're like, would that work? And we tape out the height and like, we got it. So uh, we use it it on the floor to do real floor plans. So like, so the clients can walk around and actually see the floor plan in real life, like full scale. We use it that way. The boys use it as crafting stuff. And then I don't get afraid that they're going to peel the paint off my walls. Right. So I use it all the time. Right. Freaking love blue paint. Oh, awesome. Okay, yeah. good. Yeah, I love that. Oh, well, thank you, Nina. This was so great to hear your story and hear all the, the ups and downs and how it sounds like with some courage, a bit of risk-taking. And and also, I feel like you really have adapted that launch and iterate. It's very much the tech mentality. It's like you're you try it, and if it works, great. If not, you'll pivot and make it work. Totally. Or, I guess I would do that. Or not I be mean, afraid to leave it. Not be afraid yeah. to, to walk away. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree with that. And that part is really challenging, but you do, you know, you it. looking back, you, you, can, you can see that it was the right thing. And yeah, you do have to find a way to separate yourself a little bit, um, which is challenging. You know, this has been the loveliest conversation. I think I even learned something about myself. Um, It's so great. It was like therapy. I don't even need to like call someone this week. I'm like, great, good to go. (laughs) Cancel that appointment. Actually, (laughs) that is something we talk about a lot that making is there, you know, it's so therapeutic. There's a whole like mindfulness that comes mm-hmm. along with making, which you just said, that's like, that's where your self-care comes from. And during the pandemic, we did a study with some customers, like a large pool of our customer base, you know, what was the most important thing to them? Obviously they like Michael, so they're kind of biased towards crafting, but more than <laughs> totally. in some places, you know, faith, family, exercise, a glass of wine, like crafting is the thing. That really yeah. helps. So maybe really crafting and also too. podcasting for us is therapeutic. <laughs> I'm super into podcasting now, but I really appreciate you like letting me on and thinking of me and including me in this because I think it's really interesting. I love the idea of a podcast for creatives and for, you know, crafting. And I, I just, it's exciting to support and speak to other artists out there. So thank you for letting me on. Well, it was our pleasure to have you. And we've been trying to figure out something to do for a while with you and Michael. So this, I think, is our first step in that direction. So it was awesome seeing you and have a great rest of your day. Have a good afternoon. Thank you. You too.
to say a big thank you to Nina for joining us on the show today and for sharing her time, her creativity, and her perspective on life as an artist with us. And thank you all to our listeners for joining us here on the Michael's Craftivity Podcast. Please make sure to follow us for more creative conversations. And of course, if you liked what you heard, consider leaving us a review or comment and sharing the creativity with someone else in your life. We'll see you next time on the Michael's Craftivity Podcast.